0: Well, this isn't the title of my sermon, but it's the first slide. It says, A Diamond in the Rough. A diamond in the rough. That may not look a lot like a diamond to you, but that's what it kind of looks like when it comes out of the ground. And in Pretoria, South Africa, on January 26th, in 1905, 1905, a miner by the name of Thomas Evan Powell found a stone it would become known as the Cullinan Diamond. It was so incredible that they thought it was just a crystal, a glass crystal of some sort. Because no one up till this time had ever found a diamond this large. When it comes out of the ground, it kind of looks just plain like the previous slide. (laughs) But this slide, go ahead, gives you an idea of the actual size. It's It's a reconstruction of it That's not the real diamond. That is a grass crystal. But that's to the size and dimension of what they found in the ground. 3,160 carat diamond. Almost four inches long, two and a quarter inches wide, and over two and a half inches thick, this diamond. That looked like a crystal, a piece of glass. Well, when they... Got this diamond because of politics, if you can believe that. They gave that uncut stone to the king of England. Kind of kissing up to him for some rebellion that had been taking place, quite frankly. And they decided the stone, they got a guy to cut it. And the guy that was going to cut the stone was so nervous. Folklore says that he had people there to catch him in case he passed out. And when he had made the initial cut and he took the little hammer and went pink, it says he fainted dead out (laughs) because of the stress was relieved. What does this diamond look like when it's done? Well, go to the next slide. That is one part, approximately one sixth of that diamond. It's called the Star of Africa, 530 carats. That diamond is in the scepter of the King of England. At the top. They made a second one almost this big that's right in the center of the the, the crown that the king or queen of England wears. If you see Queen Elizabeth wearing this royal crown, that's the second diamond of this. And they made nine of them that were humongous in size. And they made about another 90 smaller diamonds. And look at that thing. How does it get that way? Well, it took a lot of planning, first of all with all of the technology that they had in in that time frame, they plan: how are we going to cut this thing? How are we going to split this thing? How are we going to bring out the beauty that's within? So the first thing is they cleave it or saw it in half or saw it in parts. They figure out where they're going to saw it and split it into smaller pieces. Then they do what's called brooding. It's grinding the stone. Man, how would you get a little nervous? Grinding this stone. And then after they've ground the stone, they block the stone and then they do what's called... Faceting the stone. All of those fancy little pieces that just glow and show the light, reflect the light, all those little parts are the facets in the stone. So they have to facet the stone. And then when they're through faceting the stone, they polish the stone to a, as a brilliant a brilliance as they can get. And then when all of that's done, they give it a big a bath in acid to clear up all of the debris of the stone. And then it's inspected to see if it's good enough. All of that inner beauty, and as I say, that's just that's less than one sixth of that major diamond. And that beauty was within it. But it didn't just come out and wasn't visible to the people that found it. They almost were going to discard it because it was a worthless piece of glass crystal. But that beauty was within. The beauty was within. Today, as we continue in the story, we're going to look at a human diamond in the rough. When we see people that have reached certain levels of success in the world, no matter what area of life it might be, we all look at them and go, wow, are they lucky. And we don't know the story behind what it took to get to that place in life. What kind of things they had to endure. Kind of like that diamond. It didn't just come out of the ground all brilliant and shining and reflecting light like this. It had to have a lot of work done. And we're going to look in our story today, the process that a 17-year-old boy had to go through. And in going through this process, God was preparing him to save his chosen nation. A 17-year-old boy, what a foolish God we serve but he always knows what he's doing. A 17-year-old boy, really a human diamond in the rough, and he required a process to go through to prepare him to be the guy who is going to preserve God's chosen nation. Well, the guy's name is Joseph, as you might have figured out, and the title of my message is, The Lord Was With Joseph, and the Lord Is With You. And we sometimes forget that. In the midst of the storm and the trial, it's awfully easy to go, where in the world is God in this? And if you or I would have been Joseph, we would have probably said, where in the world is God? How can I be so abandoned? First of all, who is Joseph? Well, Joseph's great-grandfather was Abraham. And if you remember, God chose Abraham to become the nation that was going to be his people. And he had a son named Isaac, so that would have been his grandfather. And Isaac had a son named Jacob, or Israel. They changed his name to Israel. And that would have been his dad. And he was the, the uh, 11th son out of 12 boys. Now, if you know anything about the Jewish culture, being number two isn't all that great, but being number 10 isn't great at all. Number one gets all of the, the inheritance, basically. They're, they're their favorite child. He's number 10, or 11. And the 10 older ones hate him. Now, brothers, I have a couple brothers. We didn't get along all that well most of the time. But hate them. They hated Joseph. Most of you, if you know the story of Joseph, what you connect with is the colored coat of Joseph that I showed you in the title. His multicolored coat. And we can go, wow, what a pretty coat. To the brothers, it was a reminder of how he was the favorite son of their father. And they hated him even more. Every time they saw him. In that cloak, they would hate him more. And in his 17-year-old, somewhere in that time frame, he has a couple of dreams from God. And they're really prophetic dreams of what's coming in the future, but he's a 17-year-old boy, and I don't know whether he was a little naive, a little foolish, or a little cocky. I'm not sure. I don't think cocky was probably the problem, but maybe... But in these two dreams, he basically made the mistake of telling his brothers and his parents about his dreams. And in these dreams, he says, God, I had this greatest dream from God, and basically you're all going to bow down before me. Now, they hated him before he told them about that dream. You can imagine how much more they hated him after telling him about that dream. It's about in this setting that the other brothers are off with the flocks and, and Jacob says to his son Joseph, go and check on the boys. Well, this had happened once before in his life and basically he went back and told his... He tattletaled is what he did. He went back and told on his brothers they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing and they hated him more for that. So now this time they're going to check on him and, and he, when he's coming, they can see him from a long ways off. And they see him coming and, and his fancy cloak, and can you imagine him sitting there seeing him coming and the anger and the hatred is rising up in him and they say, st- let's do something about this kid. We got to get rid of him. Now Reuben was the oldest and he's trying to, trying to protect him a little bit as best he can, but basically what it comes down to, is, let's kill him. We're out here in the middle of nowhere, who would know? Let's kill him. Reuben talks him into throwing him into this empty pit in the ground, this empty hole in the ground, and and throws him in there, and they're still plotting and planning, what are we going to do with this this loser? And Reuben Reuben didn't want to kill him, and Reuben actually wanted to get him back to dad somehow, but it didn't work out that way. But they didn't kill him, and they didn't leave him in the pit, they sold him to a group of people that was traveling to Egypt, they were called Ishmaelites. Ishmael. Remember the name Ishmael? Might have came up in the last story. And he sold him to Ishma, the Ishmaelites, basically for the price of a slave. And when they got him to Egypt, they in turn sold him at a slave auction. And now a man named Potiphar buys him. And Potiphar is the, basically he's the, the head bodyguard of Pharaoh. He's an important man. And Joseph becomes his slave. And then there's a couple of scriptures that, that stand out and give us a picture of what it was like in Potiphar's house for Joseph. It says this in Genesis 39, verse 2, And the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. It's interesting when you hear those, those, those scriptures when you're reminded of what's happened in Joseph's life to get him to that place and the next verse verse 3 of chapter 39 says and now his master Potiphar saw that the Lord was with him and caused all that he did to prosper in his hand he was so prosperous that it was obvious to this Egyptian Potiphar that the hand of the Lord was with him and was prospering everything he did so Potiphar gives him total control of his household total control And most of us are a little bit familiar with the story, some very familiar with the story, but we know that while this is happening, Potiphar's wife decides she's lusting after Joseph. He's a good-looking young man by now. And she wants him. And she keeps inviting him to her bed. And he keeps resisting. And finally, one day, he says, no, there's no one in the house. He turns to flee temptation. She grabs his cloak and comes off. And she falsely accuses him of raping her. The Lord was with him, and everything he did was prospering. And he's falsely accused, and now he's thrown in prison. And in prison, the chief jailer recognizes this guy's got stuff. And he puts him in charge of a lot of things, especially two other prisoners who happened to have been the baker and the cupbearer for Pharaoh, who had got crosswise with Pharaoh, and he threw them both in jail. And then in, in Genesis 20, 39, verses 21 through 23, we read these words The Lord was with Joseph, and the chief jailer saw that the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it to prosper. So now in jail, he's prospering, and it says the Lord is with him. Boy, the Lord is with him. Look what's happening. And in jail, he, he discovers a gift of interpretation of dreams. The baker and the cupbearer both have a dream. And Joseph interprets the dreams for him. One of them the baker it wasn't such a good dream. In 3 days they're going to cut your head off. And it came true. And the cupbearer said in 3 days the guy's going to the Pharaoh's going to lift lift you up and you're going to be restored to your position and it came true. And Joseph says to him, you know, when you get out, when you get to Pharaoh, tell him about me. Don't forget to tell him about me. I want out of this mess. Well, the cupbearer gets out, just as Joseph said it would from the dream he interpreted, and of course he forgets all about Joseph in the prison. And finally, Pharaoh has a dream. It's a very troubling dream. And the long and short of it was in this dream that he had... It was so troubling, he called all the magicians, all of the wise men that he had at his disposal as Pharaoh, the most powerful man on planet earth. And he says, tell me what my dream means. And nobody could tell. And finally, the cupbearer says, you know what? There was this guy. I forgot to tell you about him. Named Joseph, he's in your prison. He was Potiphar's slave in prison he interpreted a dream and it turned out exactly like he said I think he can interpret your dream so they call on Joseph and he's brought before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says here's my dream can you interpret my dream and the details of the dream you all need to read about if you haven't already but in the dream basically it was this there's going to be seven years where we're going to have bumper crops in all of Egypt for seven years and following those seven years we're going to have seven years of famine like you've never seen before and that's what your dream means and pharaoh says wow what do we do and joseph says here's what you should do store up during the seven years of plenty so that during the seven years of famine we survive pharaoh says great idea and before long joseph is the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Only Pharaoh is above him. And he implements the plan so that Egypt would survive those seven years of famine. And then we see in Genesis chapter 42 through the end of the book, chapter 50, the story unfold how because of this famine, eventually his brothers, his 10 older brothers that hated him, wanted to kill him, sold him into slavery, are sent by their father to go to Egypt and buy food because the famine is causing people to starve. And in those chapters we see how his brothers come. And of course, not knowing who Joseph was because he's 22 years have passed. 22 years. He's now 39 years old. And he went through all this stuff. And and his brothers came to him. And as they would have to do, they bowed before their brother. And it details how this interchange took place between him and his brothers. And it's a wonderful story. But the thing that I want you to just catch right now is, when his brothers came, second most powerful man in Egypt... 22 years since he's seen his father and his younger brother. He's been imprisoned unjustly. He was sold as a slave. Accused of rape. 22 years have passed and now he's the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And here come those 10 guys who wanted to kill you. And he didn't get any revenge. His heart was broken for him and he loved him why why well somewhere in those 22 years Joseph saw himself in God's upper story he saw himself in the role he had in God's master plan he didn't get so wrapped up in his lower story that he wanted revenge upon his brothers he was looking at the big picture of God's upper story and he realized that somehow or other, his lower story, his life story, was part of God's master plan, part of God's upper story. He got his eyes off of his circumstances, situation, all the injustice, all the things that seemed unfair, and he had his eyes on what God was doing in his master plan. And God's upper story, if you remember, is What? He wants to be with his people. And he'll protect his people, and he'll do what it takes to get back in relationship with his people. So when finally, towards the end of the chapter, or end of the book of Genesis, he reveals himself to his brothers, and then ultimately they all come to Egypt, his whole family, Joseph brings his whole family who represents God's chosen people. And they come to Egypt and Pharaoh blesses them and they prosper like crazy. They grow to over a million people. And then Joseph's dad dies. And now the brothers, their guilt and shame comes rushing back. And they're afraid, "Uh uh-oh, now that dad's gone, Joseph's going to get even. But here's what Joseph said to him. In Genesis 45, verses 7 and 8, and then verse 20 of chapter 50. He says this to his brothers. It was to save lives that God sent me. God sent me to preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. It was not you who sent me here, but God. You intended it to harm me, but God intended it For good. When we look at the story of Joseph, if we look at it from the right perspective, what we see is a story of the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and the redemption of God. That's what the story is really about. If we remember what God's upper story is, if we remember what his master plan is, and we look at Joseph's life as a lower story within his plan to save his people. This lower story of Joseph should help us to really trust God even more in our difficult times. When our world seems to be crashing down around us, Joseph's lower story should encourage us in our lower story. What can we learn from this story to help us have the faith that's needed when we go through those difficult times. And that's what I want to take a look at for the next few minutes. Kind of three main things that I want us to get out of this story. The first is this. Man will fail us. Man will fail us. If we get our eyes on man, they will let us down. They will fail us they are not in charge of our divine destiny that God has established for us. When you look at this, Joseph must have felt like everybody but God was defining his destiny. Here he was as a 17-year-old having these dreams about all his brothers are going to bow before him, his parents are going to bow before him, and he may not have understood it all, but he must have thought, how in the world is that going to happen? His brothers hated him. But because God chose Joseph to lead his people, to protect his people, they hated him. His brothers plotted to kill him, but sold him into slavery in Egypt. Getting a lot of echo up here. They sold him into slavery. Potiphar's wife Lies, accuses him of rape, he gets thrown in prison, falsely accused. Here he's in prison and he makes a couple of friends with the baker and the cupbearer. And one loses his head and the other forgets about him. It seemed like everybody he was coming in contact was destroying his destiny or writing his destiny for him and it wasn't a very good one. We need to understand The destiny that God has for us. He will use people. People will be involved, but they will ultimately fail us. We need to keep our eyes on God. Trust God. Wouldn't it be obvious to ask this question if you're Joseph? Where in the world is God in all my suffering? I mean, I got to say, I'd have been ready to ask that a whole bunch of times. I'm thrown in a pit. They're talking up there. I can hear them and they're plotting to kill me. My brothers, they sell me as a slave, and they sell me as a slave to somebody else to make a profit. I'm nothing more than a commodity. God, where are you? I'm falsely accused of rape, and I'm thrown in jail. God, you're my defense. Where are you? He interprets a dream that blesses the cupbearer. He gets set free, and he forgets all about Joseph. God, where are you? Where was God? His fingerprints were all over Joseph's life when we look at it now. And somewhere in the midst of that, Joseph caught that vision of the upper story of God, realizing that he was part of a much bigger plan. When you look at that, that brings me to number two. God's plan will prevail. God's plan is going to always prevail. It's his plan. He's God. But boy, oh boy, will there be bumps along the way. And will there be people along the way? Some of them seem like they're a real help. Some of them seem like they're throwing us off track completely. The reality is, most of the time when we're going down that path, we don't know which is which. Because we don't know how and what is being done in our life by the different individuals. We look at Joseph's life, the fingerprints of God on his life, God revealed himself and his plan to Joseph in a dream when he was 17 years old that his brothers were going to bow before him. He had faith in this process that he did not reject God. He had a revelation at 17. This is what's going to happen. Revelation is what's necessary for faith that will not fail us. That's what we need. You know, you don't need a dream. You don't need a prophetic word. They're good. They're great. They can give us revelation. But God's revealed his word to us to build our faith. We need that revelation. We don't need blind faith. You know, Christians always get accused of being ignorant and stupid. You guys, just blind faith. You'll follow and walk off a cliff. No, we have revelation. We have revealed faith. God has revealed himself to us by his Holy Spirit. He's drawn us. He's wooed us. He's brought us to that place. What brings a person to a place where they come forward and they say, I want to accept Jesus Christ? Nothing natural. The Holy Spirit. And then he takes the Word of God and he reveals it to us. And we can hang on to those promises of revelation that he's not going to forsake you. Things will work out. Just trust me. Keep your eyes on me. That revelation comes and it builds our faith. Why it's so important we understand the Word of God. He has a divine destiny for every one of us, just like he had for Joseph. Revealed faith. His fingerprints all over Joseph's life. They were going to kill him. God prevented him from killing him. They sold him into slavery instead. Gee, if i got to be a slave, Potiphar's house isn't a bad place to become the, second, the most powerful man in Potiphar's household. The providence of God put him there. But wait a minute. He got falsely accused while he was there and thrown in jail. What happens in jail? This gift of interpretation of dreams is given to him. And this gift of interpretation of dreams is what unlocks the prison and opens the door to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in Egypt. Can you imagine being the 11th of 12 boys Raising sheep in the middle of nowhere. And now you're the second most powerful man in the world. People bow to you. The providence of God was all over his life. The fingerprints of God were all over his life. God used Pharaoh. He used Pharaoh. The most powerful man in the world was nothing but a pawn in God's master plan. He used Pharaoh to put him, put Joseph in that position of power. He used Pharaoh to put Joseph in a position of power so when Jacob's children, his brothers could come, they would have favor. Not only did they get food, they got brought into the land of Egypt, they got given this wonderful, wonderful fertile land and they prospered like crazy. They hated Jews. They despised shepherds. And yet God prospered them. God fulfilled the prophetic word, the prophetic dream that Pharaoh had, seven years of of of, of abundance and seven years of, fa- of famine. He fulfilled these words. And somewhere along the line, Joseph got it. He realized that he was part of God's plan. His lower story was part of God's upper story. And this is the perspective we need when we're going through life. We need to have God's point of view. Lord, what in the world are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? I know you're God. I know you save me. I know you love me. What is it you're trying to teach me? As we go through this. How are God's fingerprints all over your life? And the reality is we don't hardly notice it until we look back on things that have happened in our life and go, Wow, praise God, he was there. Thank you for what he did when I didn't even know he was doing it. We need to know and realize that his fingerprints are all over our life. We're all called for his purposes. And the third part of this is how do we apply this to our lives? What are the implications of this truth? How does it work? Well, first of all, God is in control. How do you like that? You think you're in control. I think I'm in control. Shoot, I'm a control freak. Well, I shouldn't confess that. I used to be a control freak. And that thing rears its ugly head regularly. God's in control. My job is to cooperate with what God's doing, and sometimes I don't like what he's doing. Sometimes it's painful what he's doing. Sometimes it's emotionally distressing what he's doing. But it's going to work out for good. You know, Joseph's story absolutely makes no claims that God will directly intervene in every situation. I mean, gee God, couldn't you have given me this gift of dream interpretation somewhere besides a dirty prison cell? course he could have. He chose not to. I have no idea why. A lot of things in my life are like that. I said, Lord, I could have learned this some other way. I didn't have to be so beaten up. Did I? And he's going, I think so. Or I'd have done it a different way. We need to know and realize that that us God will bring good out of every evil. And there's a scripture we need to cling to in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. But we need to cling to the whole verse. Not just pieces we like the best. It says this, God causes. Okay, who's in control? God. What does He cause? All things to work together for good. Amen. Verse doesn't end there. To those... Who love God doesn't even end there to those who are called according to his purpose. We have been called, if we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we've been called for his purposes. Do we love God? And I don't want to go down this rabbit trail very far, but the Bible's pretty clear. If we really love God, we won't continue to live in a lifestyle of sin knowing what we're doing. He knows we're not perfect, He knows we're going to sin. He, he made provision for that through forgiveness, repentance. But the Bible's clear. You really love God. You know what? Once you know something's wrong, we need to do our best to walk away from that because we love Him. And these are the people that it says all things will work for good for those who love God. God is, this might disturb you, much more interested in our holiness than our happiness. The joy of the Lord and happiness are not the same thing. I can be very sad in the natural and have the joy of the Lord all over me because the joy of the Lord is what he has done in my life not what's going on out here. We need to understand he wants a holy bride. What is Jesus coming back for? A holy bride, without spot, without blemish. He's way more concerned about that than our happiness. Our joy is there. If you're saved, the joy of the Lord, the Holy Spirit lives in us. We need to just tap into it, cooperate with it. We need to also understand and remember this in our life. Suffering is not always from the devil. Suffering is not always from the devil. Because our definition of suffering isn't the same as God's. Shoot, I think I'm suffering if dinner's an hour late. God's not too concerned about that. Suffering isn't always of the devil. What do you want me to learn, Lord? Lord? What do I need to know from this experience? I can't believe you've chosen to use them (laughs) to teach me something. Anybody else would have been better. Our goal through suffering is to remain faithful to a God who's in control. That's what we need to do. Be faithful. Remain faithful. Throughout history, the martyrs of the church, they were faithful Through their suffering. Burnt at the stake, yet they were faithful. Beaten, yet they were faithful. Thrown in prison, yet they were faithful. Suffering for the cause of Christ. We, hopefully, won't be called to that degree of suffering. But we could be. And will we be faithful? Faith is the key to being able to endure the trials of life. We all have them. Some of your trials right now are overwhelming in the natural. Faith is how you get through it. Faith by the revelation of who God is and what He's done and the promises of His Word. We need to remain aware that God is training you and me for something. You don't even need to know what it is. Because if it's what He's training us for, it's going to be good. And it's going to bless you and Him. So, whatever's going on in our life, Lord, I don't believe, you know, how many of you, I'm, I was never in the military, but some of you were. How much did you love basic training? I've pretty much heard it stinks, but it prepares you for what's coming. We're just all in basic training. He's teaching us what we need to know, He has a plan. We need to realize in whatever we're going through, we are being trained. And we need to be available in faithfulness to what it is he's called us to. We need to be faithful in the little things. Everybody wants a big ministry. And the only reason we think that way is we've never had one. And I don't realize how bad it would be, how hard it is. But God says be faithful in the little things. That's what he wants us to be faithful in. It's to those that are faithful in the little things first that bigger things will come. He might just be wanting to see if you're going to reach out and help that person you meet on the street. He might just be waiting to see if you're willing to buy somebody a meal or give them a coat or if you're willing to just share the good news of Jesus with someone you don't even know. Whatever the little things are, we need to realize We're being prepared, and it's our our faith that will get us through and help us to fulfill the promises and the destiny that he has in his life. We need to realize when we're going through these things, and I think many of us can attest to this, you are part of God's plan for somebody else. God, that's amazing. What's going on in your life could be part of God's plan for someone else. What you're going through may be, able, may be the thing that enables you to speak life into someone else who's going through a situation like yours. Whatever it is. We start to get all these things into our head and apply them to our life and perspective changes. We can live a life like Joseph We have our own prisons. We are falsely accused and attacked. We have all these things. If you haven't been betrayed yet, you will. But can we remain faithful and apply these truths? We need to understand, and I hope the sovereignty of God is such a big subject and I could talk about it for so long. But I want to make sure we understand that the sovereignty of God is never an excuse for sin. He's sovereign. He can forgive anything. Yes, he can, but boy, don't do it. We need to understand that when we're going through these things. We need to keep our eye on him. And we need to rest in that sovereignty. You know, when you look at the story of Joseph, yeah. Hey, let, me, let me ask you this. Have you ever had a secret that you could hardly wait to tell somebody? I mean, you're about bursting at the seams. Go ahead, honey, say amen. <laughs> My wife has a secret. She's so excited. She can hardly wait. I'm that way. I want to tell everybody. It's almost as if God has got this plan and it's a secret, and he's so excited about his plan of redemption that he can hardly wait to tell the world that this is coming. And you know what? We see that in the story of Joseph. Listen to this. Who am I talking about? Joseph or Jesus? He was the favored son of his father. In whom I am well pleased. His father sent him to his brothers who rejected him. He was taken to Egypt to avoid being killed when Herod was killing all the babies. He was sold for the price of a slave and was falsely accused. He was condemned between two prisoners a cupbearer and a baker. Two men on a cross. His suffering eventually led him to a place of prominence and honor, and his brothers bowed their knees to him at last. In the end, he had suffered much, but knew he had endured it all in order to save the lives of those he loved. Even though the Messiah's coming was centuries away, it's as if God can hardly wait to show the world, I have a plan of redemption. My upper story is I want to be with you. And eventually I'm going to send my own son to die for you. To die on a cross for you. To pay the price of redemption. God's upper story. Doing whatever is necessary to His people to himself. You and I have a lower story. It's called our life. God has an upper story, and it's awesome. And our lower story is part of his upper story. It'll change our perspective when we get that in our heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you from a story of Joseph that's so familiar to many. God, there is so much we can glean. Lord, a revelation of just who you are, what your plans and purposes are, God, and who we are, your beloved. Lord, I pray that as we sit in here this morning, we, we understand how much you love us, that you died for us through your son Jesus. God, I pray that, pray that we would get a revelation that the plan that you have for our lives is a good plan no matter what we're going through. Lord, I pray that you would give us greater revelation of your word, of who you are, and of your ways that our faith would grow. Lord, I pray you would give us the grace to do our part in being in your word, studying your word, reading your word. Lord, I thank you that just like Joseph No matter where we're at, no matter what's going on in our life, even right now today, your fingerprints are all over it. And as we keep our eyes on you, your word is true. We're never alone. You'll never give us more than we can endure without providing that way of escape and recognizing that you are that way. So Lord, I pray for each one of us as we go our different directions today and this week. We go with new glasses on, seeing things from that God's eye view and not just looking in the natural. And I pray that it will shape us and change us into all that you've called us to be for your glory.